Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. The time for that membership class on Saturday is 9 to 12. And um, again, anybody who's interested, whether you've been here for a while or just um, starting to attend or coming back um, after a period of being away, uh, you're welcome to join to just uh, hear, engage with uh, myself and one or two of the other elders about where we are at as a church, where we're going, what the Lord's doing within us, and what we um, know and have come to know as the foundations of who we are as a body. Well, with that, again, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Um, my name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. And um, especially if you're visiting us, uh, we're picking up today in our series, The Songs of Jesus, in which we've been plugging in the playlist of the Psalms. And I just want to remind you, take a minute to remind you of what we've heard so far because uh, if you've been around, you know that we started way back at the top of this playlist, looking at Psalms 1 and 2. And in there, we learned that this playlist is all about getting God's people into God's Word and God's Word into God's people because God's Word is all about God's promised king. It's the hope of the world. It's God's plan to save a world that cannot save itself. The hope, the promise of God's king. A promise made to a man named David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. And after Psalms 1 and 2, we find that it's about that no matter how far David flees, that's book one of the Psalms, or how far David falls, that's book two of the Psalms, that this promise will stand because its fulfillment rested not on David, right? The one the promise was made to, but on God, the one the promise was made by. That's books one and two of the Psalm. The problem was everyone thought, even David thought, that promise was about his son Solomon left more, left God's people, God's king even, more than a little disappointed. Because after Solomon ruled because of the way he ruled, God tore the kingdom from him and tore the kingdom apart because of him. Do you know the story back in 1 Kings? This is the end of Solomon's reign. It started off pretty good, but by the end, these are the words of God, that I will tear the kingdom out of your hands. And this is what the people of God, the people of that kingdom were left with, a little more than a little disappointed. Which meant that to books one and two of the Psalms, like we've said, a third had to be added. A third to help God's people deal with the disappointment. And today we're going to look at the psalm that brings that third book to a close. At Psalm 89. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Psalm 89. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 45. A, a good chunk of this 
psalm, even though we're actually going to focus most of our attention today on what follows after that. But it'll be helpful to hear uh, what sets that up. So again, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 89. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 45. This is God's Word. It says this, A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him? O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, with Your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You shattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are all people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall call, cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. 
I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, disappointment of this world is often beyond overwhelming. We don't know what to do with it. But I pray that our time this morning in this psalm would teach us that dealing with the disappointment begins by bringing it to you. And that that's no less true when our disappointment is with you. And I pray that we would see that today and find the comfort that's only available in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. It's a very different perspective being a pawn on the board than being the master at play. Let me say that again. It is a very different perspective being a pawn on the board than being the master at play. The jury's still out, but one of the greatest chess games that was ever played has been dubbed by those who know it best as the Polish Immortal. It was a game played in Warsaw in 1928 between a guy named Glinksburg and a man by the name of Miguel Najdorf, a Polish-born Jew who would spend most of his life selling insurance as a refugee in Argentina 
after World War II. And yet, it's this game before he had to flee his homeland, at the very beginning of his amateur chess career, for which Najdorf is remembered most. And here's why. The game started off without any great flourish, with only one pawn being lost in the first ten moves. But then in a succession of moves, Najdorf proceeded to sacrifice both of his bishops and both of his knights, only gaining in return two of his opponent's pawns. So that as a novice looking in from the outside at this board that was all white and not much black left, as a novice, you would have thought to yourself, he's given up the game. And yet it was precisely through the losses he incurred. It was precisely through the sacrifices that he made by which he was able in one last move to checkmate the king he had drawn out to kill. And so Najdorf proved the point, showing again that it is a very different perspective being a peace on the board and being the master at play. And this is precisely what the psalmist in Psalm 89 is trying for himself and leading us to as well come to grips with, to entrust back into God's hand the future of both the pieces and the board. That they are not ours to control. They are God's to do with what He pleases and what He knows best to accomplish the purposes He sets out to accomplish from the beginning. This is what Psalm 89 and the psalmist of Psalm 89 are trying to come to grips with. And it's what we're going to see as we look in verses 46 and following, which we're going to get to in a minute. But to set that up, we're going to just briefly look at what we read before. Because it's the contrast first between what God's said in the past and second, what we experience in the present. That third makes it such a struggle to trust Him for the future. Do you hear that? It's the contrast between what he's said in the past and second, with second, what we experience in the present that makes it so hard, so impossibly hard to trust him for the future. And yet, trust him, we must, for we don't have anywhere else to go. Let's look first 
at what God has said in the past. Because it's recounted here. And I want you to look with me now at at, at what we've already read. And and notice to begin with that this psalm was written by a a man named Ethan the Ezraite. And and if you look back even further at Psalm 88, you'll see that that psalm was written by someone with a very similar name. By a guy named Heman the Ezraite. And you got to know their story a little bit to really appreciate what's being said here. Because these were two of the guys back in the book of Kings to whom Solomon was compared. Do you remember that? There, back in 1 Kings, we're told that Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the border of Egypt. And that on top of the great wealth of Solomon, God gave to Solomon a wisdom that surpassed all the wisdom of all the peoples of all the earth. But specifically it says that Solomon was wiser than these guys, than Ethan the Ezraite and his brother Heman. Interesting, right? That, that these are the two guys to whom Solomon's wisdom was compared. And the two guys whose songs then came to cap off book three of the Psalms that was trying to deal with the disappointment of Solomon. Interesting, right? Elsewhere in Chronicles, we're told that both Ethan the Ezraite and his brother Heman were the ones appointed by David to serve alongside that guy named Asaph. They were set up as the singers in Solomon's temple. These were the guys. Asaph, if you remember, was the one who wrote Psalm 73. We looked at last week. And here's these two brothers, the authors of Psalms 88 and 89. But I want you to imagine a minute what this was like. I want you to imagine what that would have been like to be one of these guys and to watch the guy who was supposedly wiser than you with all the hopes and all the dreams on his shoulders rise and fall before your very eyes. Can you imagine singing in that guy's temple And watching all the destruction that his waywardness brought upon God's people. It will totally change the way you read then the beginning of this psalm. So that through it, you kind of get the, that, you kind of get that you're not so much listening to a guy that's overflowing with optimism as much as you're listening to a guy who's agonizing to hang on, agonizing over the pain. So Ethan says in verse 1, just hear this with a different tone, almost committing himself to do something that is so contrary to his circumstances. He says, I will sing. 
He says, despite it all, of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, and with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Why? For I said at some point or another, I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. And if I said it once, I'm not going to start saying something different now. I said it. But even more, verse 3, you have said. You said, God. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You said it. And because you said it, and because I repeated it after you, I'm going to sing about it now. Selah. Hear how different it sounds? Understanding the context? Even more astounding, though, is Ethan's elaboration of that covenant in what follows. I mean, just listen to his description of the promise God had made to David. It's like the greatest hits album where Ethan's gone around and collected all the, the sound bites from 2 Samuel 7 or from David's reflection on that in Psalm 72 or all the messianic psalms that came before this. He's collected it all. So that when Ethan gets to recounting it in verse 19, he says, Of old you spoke and said, verse 20, that you chose David, that you anointed him, said you'd establish him and strengthen him, said the enemy wouldn't outwit him and his foes would be crushed. You said it. The 27, he'd be the highest of kings. In 29, his offspring and his throne would be established forever. No less than 31 iterations of God's promise to David. Before turning then from what God said in the past to second what Ethan was experiencing in the present. And I just want you to notice that he doesn't hide anything here or try to smooth anything over. He doesn't minimize the philosophical problem of having a God who said one thing but who's apparently done another. If anything, Ethan brings this out more than anybody else. And that's how he leads us to deal with the disappointment. To deal with the disappointments of life. Not to sweep it under the rug, but to put it on the table before God. God's the only one who can deal with it anyway, right? So again, from what God said in the past, he turns to its contrast with what he's experiencing in the present. That you said, God, that you wouldn't abandon. But now, 38, you cast off. You said you'd keep your covenant. But now, 39, you renounce it. You said his kingdom would endure. But 40, now the walls are falling down and all of it is in ruins. 
And your anointed is the scorn of his neighbors. Ethan says, and it's his foes who are exalted, not David, and your king who falls in battle. Such that verse 44, just listen to these words. You have made his splendor cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. Do you hear it? Do you hear the agony? That it's precisely what God said in the past in contrast to what we experience in the present that makes it so hard to trust Him for the future. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that? Like God promised. Don't you remember something of Him promising that this was supposed to be the abundant life? That that's what it was supposed to unlock. That the cross was supposed to do something like that. That resurrection body that Jesus walked out of the tomb with. That that your life was somehow supposed to reflect that and yet so often we feel like it doesn't. Do you feel the agony? Now, admittedly, we've been in for a little bit now the pits of the Psalms. Things are going to get better, okay? Things are going to get better. But this is part of life, and these Psalms are given to us to give us words to express what we're given, that we're supposed to Feel what they feel. Know what they know. And it's okay. It's okay. Because sometimes past promises and present circumstances seem like total opposites. It's supposed to unsettle us. It's supposed to leave us wanting. And yet, despite how stark the contrast is between first, what God said in the past, and second, what we experience in the present, we're invited with Ethan to struggle to entrust to God the future. And what I want you to see here is that this is precisely that. It's a struggle. It's not easy. It's not natural. Whether it's entrusting ourselves as pieces in play or entrusting to God the board on which we've been placed. And you can see this in the fact that both Verses 46 and 49 start out with a question. How long, O Lord, Ethan asks, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then he asks in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? 
You see, they're questions. And questions that express at least some level of the doubt we're expected to struggle with. Doubt is a piece of life. It's a part of it. It's the opposite side of faith. And it's meant to be part of the journey. It's expected to be part of the journey. The question isn't whether you walk through life with doubts. It's what you do with them. here, what you do with them, if you follow Ethan, is you aim them at God. You aim the questions at God. This isn't all those struggling in life, going off and founding some fraternity together to pat each other's backs and pose their questions out from under the God that they have a problem with. This isn't some some place to, to list out their grievances so that ultimately they can then dismiss the God they don't want to believe in. No, we're meant to struggle by bringing our questions to God. Because it's when we're apart from Him that we risk most our how-comes turning into how-could-yous. When somehow we're no longer looking for answers, but we're just simply passing out judgment. We're meant to struggle and invited to struggle, but to do so by bringing the struggle to the one we're struggling with. To struggle by bringing our questions to God. But I want you to notice also that bringing the questions is not the end of the road, right? For Ethan, the questions turn into requests. Ethan asks first, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Forever was as long as Solomon was to sit on the throne. Is this how long you plan to hide? But his request then is what? Verse 47, remember how short my time is. For what vanity we're created, that that we all see death, and who will deliver us from the power of the grave? Surely not the one that just got kicked off the throne and is now sitting in his grave. Who? The request is that God would remember our frailty. That God would recognize it, continue to recognize it, and that by making the request, we're saying, in fact, that we entrust that frailty into His hands. Remember our frailty, God. That we are pawns and cannot do anything without You. We are sacrificed at Your bidding. But remember... We are pawns. Remember also, though, 
that what hope we do have is wrapped up with the board on which we were placed. With the game that is so much bigger than us. Because let's face it, right? My fate as a pawn isn't ultimately, essentially, only about me. It is wrapped up with the fate of my king. I may be sacrificed at some point. God may have a plan that turns that direction for me. But it is not about me. It is about the king. So remember the king. Because though I may be taken or or tipped during the game, if my king survives, then there's a chance that I still signed up for the right team. There's still a chance that in the end I may survive too. Because look, this is what he says. Ethan asks this in verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember David. Then the request that God would remember. Not only how we are mocked as his servants or how we carry that around with us, but remember that we are mocked along with the king. That's what he says. Remember the mockery, Ethan says, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. If you ever want to pray anything to God, you ever want to like leverage God, this is the one point we have in leverage with God. Remember the king. Wrap yourself up with the king, then pray to God to remember the king. Because this is the one thing God's going to do. Remember the board on which you have placed me. That this isn't about me. I'm okay with it. I can be okay with it. I can only be okay with it if you're doing something bigger with the guy who matters most. So that this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Despite the contrast between first what God says in the past and second what we experience in the present to nonetheless third entrust to God the future it's not sweeping it under the carpet it's not making it less difficult finding ways of re-engineering what God said Or just putting on your rose-colored glasses and changing what you think you're experiencing in the here and now. It's about taking it all and putting it on the table and begging God to do what only God can. This is the response in the pits of life. The only response that we have. And what will blow your mind and blow your expectations is that God has always and ever, time and time again, proved 
that it is very different looking out as a pawn on the board from what it looks like from the master who's at play. A kingdom was torn from Solomon's hands. It was torn in two because of him. But it was not torn for good. And despite the fall of many would-be kings and unbelievably the eventual sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the one and only King. God would prove that God has a knack for the end game. For winning when all looks lost. And yet winning in such a way that all the lost in that king get one. This is how. This is how. We've looked a lot in the last weeks at what. At what should be the content of, of what we bring to God and, and what we do in the midst. This is how, though. This is, this is how to react to the pits of life. What to do in the depths of life. What to do when you can't. It's not to hide. It's not to, it's not to, it's not to smooth it over. It's to put it on the table before God. With that, what I want to do, though, is close by just encouraging you in three ways. To first look in, to then look up, and to lastly look forward. To first look in. To look into your own life and to ask yourself, where are the struggles? Where are the disappointments that you may have been trying to sweep under the carpet to be better than you are, to, to think better than you do, to ignore or to make like they don't exist, to look into your life and get honest with yourself about the doubts that are in fact the other side of faith. To look into your life and to be open about that. I remember as a second grader, I had a teacher named Miss Fresco. And Miss Fresco was just about the nicest lady you could ever meet, like annoyingly nice. And Miss Fresco showed up in class one day with a splint on her arm where you couldn't imagine how this nice little lady ended up with a splint like that. And she proceeded to tell us the story of how. Well, we were reading a story the day before and Miss Fresco had a bench that she would sit on and she kept the books under the bench. Unbeknownst to her, the bench had begun to splinter beneath. 
and she had reached under to grab the book and got a four-inch shard of wood caught in her fingernail and didn't even flinch. Read the book, went on with the day, and eventually went to the hospital at night. Should have been a minor thing, even for the magnitude of this splint. But instead of getting up and running to the nurse, she went on with her day with a smile on her face. And it didn't help in the end. We're sometimes like that, right? We put on the facade. We, we act like things are better than they are. We don't voice what's inside. And, and not knowing it, it begins to rot. It destroys life from the inside out. When God invites us not again to sweep it under the carpet, not again to smooth it over, but to put it on the table and deal with it with the one that we are often disappointed with. So I encourage you from this passage to first look in. Second, though, I'd encourage you to look up. And by look up, I mean look up to God. Because often we want to look down at God. That's what happens. That's the trajectory of history. When you bottle stuff like this up long enough, eventually you step out from the how comes and you end up saying the how could yous. You become the judge of God. This is the entire basis for the new atheist movement of our day. They are mad at a God they don't believe exists. When God instead invites you to place yourself under his care. I've told you this story before. A friend of mine in Scotland, who's a minister now um, in a historic church in Dundee, Scotland. But started off just as a youth worker. And one of the kids that he was working with who had started coming to to the youth program and, and was just blossoming under his care one day stopped showing up. And so this guy went to his door and knocked on his door and waited until this guy's dad came to. Started up the conversation. I haven't seen Johnny lately. Where's he been? The guy says, I don't want him going anymore. Do you mind if I ask why? Because I don't believe in God. You mind if I ask why? Because I hate him. My friend was very witty, so he, he was the one that posed the question. So you hate the God you don't believe in. And digging a little more, found that this guy had lost his wife a year or two before, died to cancer, and it was the one thing he expected that a, a God would have done is not tip his wife like just another pawn. To which my friend walked with him in this conversation to a point of saying, do you realize angry at God is one thing for taking your wife, but if you then relegate him to, 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 the, to the sphere of not existing, you've lost the one hope you have of ever seeing her again. 
you lose the one hope of it ever being made right. So in this psalmist, not to put it under the carpet, not to, not to smooth it over, we're invited to put it on the table because the one we're putting it on the table before is the only one who can deal with it. So look in, look up. Let me say also, though, lastly, look forward. These psalms are so entirely, unitedly looking to the future. They were looking to a very specific moment when that king would show up. But for us, this side of him showing up, we have a little bit of a different issue. Because Jesus already came once. And yet the clock is ticking by and he hasn't come back again. Yet as different as the issue is, it actually ends up being very similar. Because it's once again about what God said in the past. About what we're experiencing in the present which makes it very hard to entrust to God the future. And yet for us, this side of Christ, having seen God do it once, that He does keep His promises, that He will accomplish His purposes, we can bank all the more that He will do it again. So I'd invite you to look in, look up. And look forward as you put the disappointments before God and allow Him to deal with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You that You've included a psalm like this in a book like the Bible. I thank You that You've not expected us to wipe away or fake like we are better than we are but have invited us to live honestly and openly and humbly and hopefully before you. And I pray that because of Jesus we would do it all the more. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.